This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone. We're so excited to have you join us for this webinar, One Step at a Time, Managing Gait and Balance Issues in Parkinson's. I'm Becca Miller. I am a person living with Parkinson's. I was diagnosed when I was in my late 30s. My daughter was nine months old. I'm currently a single mom working as a psychologist at the Yale University School of Medicine, and I'm a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. In September of 2021, I had DBS and had been learning to navigate my disease after this procedure. One of the best pieces of advice I received when I was diagnosed was to take control of my disease so it didn't take control of me. And as we know, PD impacts our mobility in, in big and small ways. Increasingly, we're gaining understanding of therapies and techniques that can help us improve our gait and balance and tips as well that can help inform care partners on how to support us. That is what our expert panel is here to share with you all today. So we've got a lot to get to, so let's get started. First, let's introduce our panelists. We're so lucky to have three experts here with us today. So from the clinical perspective, we have Dr. Alfonso Fasano. He's professor and chair of neuromodulation and multidisciplinary care at the University of Toronto. More from the research perspective, we have Dr. Anat Merrillman, She's an associate professor at the Sackler School of Medicine at Tel Aviv University. And giving us um, both the research and the physical therapy perspective is Dr. Terry Ellis, who's an associate professor and the chair of the Department of Physical Therapy at Boston University, as well as the director for the Center of Neuromod uh, Rehabilitation. Right. Welcome, uh, everyone. It's so great to have you here today. So how does Parkinson's affect gait imbalance? I'll say for myself that one of my first symptoms was a foot drag. And, and that was something that was with me for years, you know, starting out very slowly and then increasing. Um, honestly, I first attributed it to, to laziness that I just wouldn't pick up my foot, which is in retrospect really kind of strange. But, um, you know, when things come on gradually, these things happen. Can you um, talk a little bit about just how Parkinson's affects gait and balance? Uh, Alfonso, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, with pleasure. So th thanks uh, for having me and uh, hi, everyone. Um, this is a, a, an important question and the answer in theory will be very long. I'll try to make it simple also because uh, uh, it, it depends on when uh, we're, um, uh, this, uh, what stage in the disease we're talking about this, these problems. But in general, um, in, in uh, Parkinson's disease, there's a, a, an inability to produce ample movements or large movements. So for this reason, one of the early signs of uh, gait involvement is short steps. And sometimes these short steps uh, become so short uh, and also the ability of, of the person to um, elevate the foot is impaired as actually described by you as well and this becomes more of a shuffle, shuffling type of gait. Uh, they can also lead to falls quite soon because of tripping, simple, simple like that also when uh, 
um, you know, doing stairs uh, if the elevation of the foot is not uh, big enough. So this is very early signs. Actually, even earlier than this is a reduction of the arm swinging. When we walk, we, we move our arms. And an early, a very early sign is actually a reduction of this movement, especially on one side. And often people uh, happen to see orthopedic uh, surgeons initially because they have uh, shoulder issues. And that's actually coming from an, uh, an inflammation and arthritis of the joints because this movement is lost, has been lost for a few years, and therefore there is not enough lubrication of the joint during walking. Uh, over time, these problems can uh, worsen and freezing of gait is a big issue. And we'll talk about it and also the different phenomenology of freezing of gait. Um, and also balance uh, can be affected. Um, balance is a more complex motor strategy because it's actually uh, tapping into other functions. Um, in order to be in balance, we need to be focused. Our attention needs to be uh, there. We should uh, be careful, especially with what task. Uh, but balance also relies on our ability to move our legs. Uh, if we are perturbated, if there's a mechanical push, for example, on our body, sometimes a, a way we have to keep our balance is just to step. Uh, and stepping, we don't fall. So this is actually a very nice example of how gait and balance usually go together. And sometimes to fix balance, we need to fix gait. And that, that reminds me of every time I go to the neurologist, the neurologist is pulling me. Yeah, actually, this is a, an important point. So what you're describing is the so-called pull test. Uh, it, it is a test that was invented many years ago. And uh, there are online actually very nice historical videos of uh, David Marsden, the founders of this field when he explains how to do a proper pull test. Pull test has to be strong enough because we want to perturbate the person's uh, center of mass. So we want the body to be pushed enough so that we can see the reaction uh, of the body to avoid a fall. Um, it, there's a reason why this is done pulling backwards. Um, and this is actually related to one of the questions I have seen in the chat box. The natural tendency of balance problems in Parkinson's disease is retropulsion. So people tend to go backwards. Uh, we, we have issues, especially in the anterior posterior axis. So we tend to fall forward or backwards in this disease, not so much in the uh, laterality axis. And this is why uh, people with Parkinson's can actually ride a bicycle because to ride a bicycle, you need to be challenged on this type of uh, laterality uh, so, you know, uh, this is the, what we call the medial lateral axis, uh, and that's why they can do it. Instead, it's more difficult to keep the balance in the anterior posterior axis. That's why we do the pull test. So this is just to say, and that's something else that we'll discuss, discuss I'm sure, later today, that there is also a lot of compensation that, that the body puts in place. Uh, I want to just give you two examples. When it comes to balance, the, the fact that some people lean forward this is something called camptochormia. It's a, uh, something that can happen in Parkinson's. To some researchers, this is actually a mechanism of protection because if you're leaning forward, the chance to go backwards uh, is uh, reduced. And, and we see this often after physiotherapy because some people have a better posture, yet they start falling more backwards because their posture has improved. And the other example of compensation that I can think of is the cadence. Cadence indicates how many steps we can do per minute. And I mentioned already the step length uh, is reduced, uh, but the number of steps per minute is not reduced. Actually, it can be modulated. So people can actually use that to compensate. And that's why in order to keep a certain speed, people tend to have more steps with a short step length. 
that's compensation, that's good, but sometimes this leads to a vicious circle where these steps become sh shorter and shorter and faster and faster um, as the walking progresses, and that's not good. So that's a bad compensation. But I'll pause here because I know I throw a lot of stuff in, in this answer, and we'll need to address one by one uh, uh, these, these different aspects uh, as we go forward. No, this is great. Uh, Anand, I wonder if you want to share with us a little bit how the evolution of how of gait impairment over time, sort of with, with the progression of the disease. Uh, sure. So, hi, everyone. I'm Anand. Um, so, first of all, um, as you mentioned, and as Alfonso mentioned, um, and in Parkinson, everything is gradual. So, it starts off very minor and just accumulates over time. And we need to remember that gait disorders are not similar throughout the disease, but they're not similar also between individuals. They vary quite extensively. And that has to do also with, you know, how a person, uh, was, if he was mobile, very mobile, age also affected. So there's many, many um, additional aspects to gay disorders and Parkinson's disease that are not just the disease. But in general, when we're talking about early stages of the disease, we will find, you know, an asymmetrical behavior. So something that is very, uh, we can see the short steps that were discussed here more on one side, the arm swing in one side, and then once the disease progresses, we will see a more symmetrical behavior uh, that also affects um, rotation of the trunk. So this rotation of the trunk will create even a more uh, shorter and slower kind of uh, walking uh, movement. And with the progression of the disease, we will see additional issues that come off from the biomechanics of that impaired walking. And these relate to freezing of gait, for example, the inability to actually move or the feeling that the feet are glued to the ground. And also, uh, in addition, we will see falls. And this relates to the balance issues that uh, were mentioned here by Alfonso, but also to the real um, challenge of the body, of the biomechanics with the short steps and the inability to actually um, correct uh, movement um, um, changes or, or imbalances uh, along the way. It, I think, you know, we need to um, also mention that it might not be the case for everyone. Not everything will appear for everyone. And it's really important to listen to your own body and really describe to your physician what is bothersome to you uh, in order to actually define, you know, the treatment approach that is personalized and really will um, treat the, the problems that you have. So the aim is to provide, at the end, personalized therapy. That's great. I, I And I wonder, you know, jumping in with a question from the audience, and maybe, Terry, this is something you could uh, field um, they're asking, can weight training be something that improves balance? Yeah, yeah, I can answer that. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, in general, there have been strength training or resistance training studies that have shown, uh, that have led to improvements in balance in people with Parkinson's disease. It's one aspect of, um, of a treatment plan that can help with balance. There are other aspects, but the weight training can help with the sort of what Alfonso was saying earlier. You know, people, um, you know, with Parkinson's have difficulty turning on their muscles sort of fast enough and with enough uh, force to take a big step, for example, and uh, to prevent a fall. 
Now, you know, uh, these weight training exercises aren't going to absolutely prevent falling, but they can help improve um, a response to a perturbation and help to reduce uh, the frequency of falling. So it's one aspect of a, of a you know, uh, an exercise program that can help with balance. Well, that's a really nice transition to our next slide, which is to talk more about falls. Um, and uh, Terry, I wonder if you could share the guidelines for assessing fall risk and kind of um, how you do a home safety evaluation. Yeah, so um, we, I can talk about a couple of things. I think one reason, uh, one benefit of people seeing a physical therapist when they have walking and balance problems is that a physical therapist can spend a whole session, you know, a whole sort of 45 minutes to an hour session really sort of going in more depth with trying to figure out what's wrong with the balance and or, or walking for this particular individual. Because like Anat was saying earlier, there's lots of variability uh, in what can go wrong with balance and walking among people with Parkinson's disease. So a physical therapist will administer a lot of um, standardized tests, you know, that are, can be done, for example, in balance, standardized tests that look at different aspects of balance. So some people um, might have more trouble with balance when they're reaching down to the floor or reaching up overhead versus, for example, being perturbed or nudged or some, some quick movement that leads to a, a fall. And so by administering standardized tests, the physical therapist can help identify what aspects of balance are particularly problematic for this person. And that helps the physical therapist then, um, you know, create an exercise program that's going to be tailored to those aspects of balance. And the similar thing with walking. You know, we do all kinds of walking measures. We we, we measure walking distance and walking speed, and we look at the quality of walking. Sometimes we might even uh, ask people to wear some sensors uh, on their body and wear them at home for a week and come back in the next week so that we can take the data from the sensors to understand how much walking did, 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 did somebody do or at what intensity. And then even looking at some aspects of the quality of walking. And from all that data, using that data, then we can, uh, you know, sort of create this individualized exercise program with the goal of improving walking outcomes and particular aspects of balance that hopefully lead to a reduction in fall risk. In, in terms of assessing um, people's homes, I mean, people who are spending a lot of time at home and, you know, most of their falls happen in home then it might be a great idea to have a, a, a physical therapist or an occupational therapist come in the home and do a falls risk assessment. And that has a lot to do with identifying certain uh, environmental barriers or environmental triggers in the home that might increase risk of falling, or it can be examining strategies that people are using when they move in the kitchen or the bathroom, for example. And there might be some different strategies that people can employ to reduce their risk of falling. Does that help to answer your question? For sure, for sure. 
since we're talking about balance um, and gate, um, I, I think um, moving forward, and I've made an example of how um, actually false risk has to do not just with balance, but also with, with gate. Uh, I think we should take a step back and describe uh, a bit more the two major type of problem with walking that people with Parkinson's might have. Uh, we have actually a slide where you can see that, yeah, in general, there is bradykinesia and hypokinesia, which is classic, and it's one of the early signs I mentioned before. Bradykinesia means moving slowly. It comes from Greek. Hypokinesia means moving uh, in small steps in this regard. So it's the uh, amplitude of the motion. And that's something that we see, something that has to do a lot with our dopaminergic cells in the brain, and therefore it can improve with specific treatments, for example, levodopa. But what's really important to discuss a bit more is freezing of gait. And actually, Anat is an expert of freezing of gait, and she can probably give us an overview of uh, the different types of freezing and what triggers it. So as, let's start with a description, actually, of what freezing of gait really is. That would be great. Anat, if you could do that. So from a clinical perspective, um, really what a patient will describe to us is that he feels that the feet are really glued to the ground. So the inability to actually take a step. And this can be an inability in which there is no, there is total non-movement. So akinesia, what we call akinesia, or even a trembling in place, a feeling that, you know, they're trying to move the leg, but they're not able to. And this is actually a very, very interesting phenomenon. And people have been studying it for quite a while, but I think there's a lot of questions and a lot of explanations that we still don't know. But currently there are several theories that um, that suggest, for example, that there might be triggers or there might be connections um, between neural networks that actually are involved in this situation. So if we're talking, if Alfonso was sharing the issue with automaticity or problems with uh, basal ganglia that create, or the neurogenerative process that create this problem in automaticity, then uh, one example, one theory that uh, relates to freezing of gait is called the cognitive theory, in which it suggests that because of the lack of automaticity, people use different compensations or different uh, networks to actually compensate for this lack of automaticity, uh, meaning you know, thinking, being more aware of walking, for example. And when these fail, uh, we see a freeze. We see a problem with, uh, with gait. Um, so this is one uh, example for a theory. Another one is, for example, the stress or anxiety theory, which can explain why people tend to freeze in, in you know, in narrow passages or narrow hallways or when going uh, through a door or uh, when they're trying to reach uh, their phone when it's ringing and so forth. So when there is a trigger that uh, relates to either time or space, uh, uh, this might re be related to the anxiety theory. Um, there's also theories that relate to visual spatial processing um, and other connections might explain it. But what we see in general is that there are several different types or subtypes of freezing of gait. Um, we see people who freeze when they're off medication and people who freeze when they're on medication. These are two examples of subtypes. And uh, these actually um, are really important distinguishes because if this is a person who is freezing off medication, potentially, you know, by 
um, providing um, timely and um, and uh, accurate dose for uh, of therapy, then we can avoid this free of gait issue. Um, when freezing of gait is done and it happens in on medication, then maybe the the um, underlying mechanism is a bit different and it's not dopaminergic and we need to think what exactly triggers it and maybe provide a non-pharmacological treatment. That can be, for example, cueing, and we know that cueing might be very helpful. Uh, when we're talking about cueing, that can be something, uh, that can be a strategy such as visual cueing by providing, for example, lines on the floor uh, when walking or an auditory cue like a metronome giving some external feedback or external cueing for walking and, you know, uh, taking a bigger step. Um, in any case, similar to what we said earlier about uh, walking, here too, it's very personalized. So we, we think that, you know, in the beginning, Freezing might be very distinct for each person, and the triggers are, are very distinct for each person. And when the disease progresses, it might be a mixture of things, but initially it might be uh, very distinct for each person. And it's a good, a good thing to maybe look at the triggers and look at exactly when this happens, um, in what environment this happens, and what is the situation that it occurs in. Wow, that's such a great description and so important to have it be personalized is what I'm hearing, you know, and I wonder, there was a question from the audience about the difference between freezing, um, as we've been talking about, and fenestration. Alfonso, could you? Yeah, fenestination. <laughs> fenestration is a little, it's more, I would say they're both dangerous, uh, fenestration and fenestration. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we're talking about fascination now, uh, and it's a obscure term. And I realize that anytime I have this type of um, webinars uh, or I, I speak to people with the disease, uh, it's a common question. So just to make it simple, they belong to the same disorder, and that's why we often talk about it uh, at the same time. Freezing is basically when, when your feet are frozen. Um, and it's in a way a natural reaction that the body has. Think about when you have uh, all of a sudden you find a I don't know an animal in front of you and you and you pose a freak and you freeze. That's actually a, a natural function that we have. Unfortunately, in Parkinson's disease, this happens all of a sudden. That's why it often causes falls um, while there's ongoing walking or turning or passing doorways. So it's a motor block. That's why, the way we call it. So no movement. Fascination comes from the same pathological process, most likely in the brain, but there is no motor block. It's quite the opposite. So people keep on walking faster and faster and faster, often leaning forward. And this increase of the cadence that I mentioned before happens. Short steps, always uh, you know, shorter and shorter, fast-paced gait, but no motor blocks. And that's why this can be quite dangerous because it feels like they cannot stop themselves. And often the only way they have to stop themselves is either uh, holding onto something, uh, landing on the wall, or unfortunately sometimes even landing on the floor. So sometimes the patient actually falls on purpose to stop this propulsion. So fascination is the same process of freezing of gait, uh, this constant stepping without the motor block. Instead in freezing often we see constant stepping and then the patient, the person with Parkinson's stops, 
which is lacking in festination. So these are different. Festination is rarer than uh, freezing, uh, but it's still very important to, dis to be discussed and quite disabling. And to some extent, the approach is similar uh, in terms of treatment. Uh, I also noticed in the chat box a question about doorway, uh, and this is something that uh, Anat already mentioned. Uh, just a curiosity in case uh, uh, people wonder, we now know which ones are the risk factors for this doorway uh, problem. Uh, it turns out that people with um, the disease more, more prominent on the left side of the body tend to have this problem more often. And this is because this means that most of the pathology is on the right brain. And the right brain is the part of the brain in charge of visual navigation. So the problem here is with uh, interpreting what's happening and the visual flow as we go uh, towards a, a doorway in, in this case. And lastly, uh, in case people wonder, we often don't see these things in the clinic. We rely on what people say. Festination is a typical example, but also doorway freezing to some extent. And often um, people with freezing of gait or fascination don't have the problem in clinic. And I often see uh, uh, the spouse or the, or, the, or, the, or the person with the problem uh, almost complaining, you know, you're pretending to have this problem then because when you come to see the doctor, you don't have this issue. And actually that's the way it works. The brain in certain circumstances under the stress of the appointment in wide open space with a lot of light, no furniture works better. That's why we don't see freezing in the clinic. It doesn't mean that it's not a real problem, and that's why we need to educate people like we're doing today, because we rely on the description you give us of what happens at home. It's like when I take my car to the mechanic and the and the clunk stops, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, exactly the same analogy I use. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, my daughter gets so frustrated with me because I'll be walking with her and I'll be, I, I cannot say the word, um, I'll start going so fast. She's like, come on, stop, stop, stop. But I can't, I can't make myself stop. I'm just kind of shuffling along like pretty quickly. This is something yeah, we see often in DBS. Uh, actually, most of the fascination cases I see is in DBS patients. And my interpretation is that DBS is good at treating the motor block, so freezing of gait improves. But sometimes it's not just there to improve everything. So you see a little bit of uh, the problem in in in, in the form of fascination. Mm. I wonder if um, what each of you has recommendations for footwear. Um, it's come up in the audience, and I would love to know as well, kind of what you recommend or not recommend, um, along with you know assistive devices like canes, et cetera. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. It, footwear is a, a little tricky. Um, you know, some people say, well, you want to have something that. Um, uh, provides good support and, you know, uh, has a lot of friction and and is stable, but which can be good for some people. But in some people, that can also, the thick rubber can also be sticky and be difficult to move your leg forward. And for some others of kind of a, a more a smooth surface, um, you know, can be helpful in trying to sort of take a bigger step, yet you don't want it to be so smooth that it's slippery. So it's very, again, we have to be sort of individualize it depending on the type of gait problem that a person is presenting with. It's not sort of a one-size-fits-all recommendation. And then there was a second part to your question. There was the shoes uh, and... Assistive devices like canes oh, or... Yeah, assistive oh. devices. Yeah, we get that a lot. That's a very, very common question. And um, 
You know, I, it, it, again, it's, it is individualized to the person, but they're, they tend not to be very helpful in people with Parkinson's disease. Um, you know, uh, for example, people with Parkinson's lose automaticity of movement, right? And then they're thinking about movement. So adding another aspect of movement to the to the, you know, to the situation, not only do you have to move your body forward, but now you have to move some sort of cane or walker forward. Uh, that can be difficult. For some people that are really falling and really need some sort of assistance in the sort of, this tends to be in the more later stages, you know, sometimes a walker can be helpful, but the kind on wheels could be more helpful for some because it, you don't have to pick it up and move it and think about it so much. Yet, you know, certainly if you're festinating, you don't want to walk around wheels. You know, so it, it's very, again, you know, it's, it has to be very individualized to the person's presentation. And that, you know, I would really recommend people go see a physical therapist and with that question, hey, you know, should I be using a cane or a walker? Would that help me or, would, you know, or hinder? And uh, it's, it's an important question that requires a thorough evaluation. What I wouldn't recommend is what I see is people go in the pharmacy and buy one and start using it. And that's just not a good idea. Um, so, you know, consulting with an expert to really get a thorough evaluation is the way to go. What would you say about walking poles? A lot of questions have come up about the those yeah, I mean, uh, again, for some people, and for some people that can be used as a form of exercise you know, helping to exercise, helping to walk faster, um, you know, to, to move the arms, to get the heart rate up. Uh, but again, it really needs to be individualized to the person. The Parkinson's, if we can say anything, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all uh, recommendations. So individualizing, that's really good advice. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, um, so I know for myself, it was really helpful for me listening to Alan Alda, who is a big I'm a big fan of when you talked about marching and thinking about marching to music, that was, that's been really helpful to me. Can you, can you say more about how that works and, and kind of as a, as a tip and. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about, does somebody else want to jump in or. Just to say that uh, it's a form of, you know, we just talked about cueing as a form of uh, treatment for freezing of gait. So basically uh, if we, we think about music or cueing, they bypass the, the problem by providing something external that can give you a rhythm instead of the rhythm that is not working from internal sources. So this is, uh, this is why, you know, it kind of uh, uh, initiates the movement better and it allows you to follow that rhythm and follow that um, um, kind of pace uh, and gives people a lot more uh, mobility uh, in a sense. And it's been used also as a as an, an assisted device uh, in a sense uh, by using it in the home or in areas that are uh, difficult for for the person. Um, and Terry can talk about um, treatment uh, with cueing and music. Yeah, there's all kinds of different ways cues can be used, or strategies or cues can be used, and it depends what the problem is. You know, if the problem is gait initiation or starting walking, then something like marching can be a good way to help with that, with initiating walking. Um, if the problem is, 
you know, gradual slowing of walking and taking smaller steps as the walking continues, then things like using a metronome or music, some sort of external stimulus where the person can entrain or lock on to that external beat. That can be very helpful with something like a more long distance continuous walking over time. It helps keep the steps more regular, a little bigger, um, you know, those types of things. You know, we talked about the sort of lines on the floor. Sometimes uh, a line on a, on a threshold through the doorway can help provide a cue to step over that threshold. Lines through a doorway is a, is a strategy to help people uh, walk through a doorway. I find that when people look, look, you know, sort of look across the lines through the doorway, so the attention is actually focused through the doorway rather than on the doorway, the, the, the cues can help that focus. Um, so there's lots of different cues and strategies that people with Parkinson's can use. I've learned many from people with Parkinson's, living with Parkinson's, have taught me lots of cues. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's a, it's a sharing there's... of information and, and, and trial and error to figure out, okay, what works best for you in this situation? Actually, just... Robert in the chat is actually saying that uh, he has freezing and he finds that the only thing that actually works for him is crutches. So we learn from patients what works best. And there's so many strategies. Yeah, uh, just a, a, a note, um, uh, a word of caution about this, because it's true, every person has different strategies. Uh, but as you heard already, it's difficult to generalize. Um, I'll give you an example. I met once a man who happened to turn just jumping. So he figured that jumping was better for him to turn. But that was his personal compensation strategy. It was working for him. It didn't cause any fall. But from that to going around saying, oh, if you have problems with turning, just jump. The, you know, it's a big it's a big gap, right? And you don't want to do that. So for the same reason, any compensation strategies that you can hear about, that you can hear about uh, uh, even today, don't assume that necessarily you got to do that because it, it can actually be uh, causing falls and it can be actually a dual task. Uh, some people, instead of being helped by these devices, are, as, as you heard already, are distracted by these devices. And, and, and therefore, their automaticity is even more impaired uh, because they need to deal also with, I don't know, the pole, the Nordic pole. Yeah. Everybody has their own. And it's not easy to jump from one person to another with respect to strategies. But that's also the beauty of our brain. Our brain has incredible ways to figure out things out. And um, uh, with Bas Bloom, once we, 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 we saw a patient that uh, touches the temple, and with that strategy, he can move. Obviously, it doesn't work all the time. But that was actually an interesting observation that led to a publication uh, with the title of superficial brain stimulation to overcome freezing of gait, which was kind of a clever way to describe the, the, the strategy. So I guess the take home here is your mileage may vary and be creative and you know kind of test them out. Um, yeah. Um, these are great, these are great important principles. Um, I wonder about, you know, thinking about kind of wearables and and devices, all those kinds of things. Um, what 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 are your recommendations? Lots of talk in the chat about in the Q&A about that. Terry, do you want to start? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people come to us uh, wearing Fitbits and Apple Watches and all, all different kinds of things. And, you know, in, in, in general, those can be really helpful in 
encouraging people to be more active, you know, monitoring uh, how active you are and how many steps you're taking a day can be helpful in motivating people to do more. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it really depends on people's gait patterns, how accurate these are, uh, because sometimes, you know, if, you're, if your gait is really slow or very shuffling, then it's not clear whether these devices can actually measure a step accurately. You know, so normally when we take a big step and we land on our heel and it's very rhythmic, these devices are pretty good at, at identifying steps and counting them. But for some people, you know, a really slow pattern or a really shuffling pattern or certainly freezing of gait, this is, they're probably not as accurate. Um, you know, it, so it, it, again, it, it, it really depends. I mean, to some degree, you can check this <laughs> and count your steps and count and see what the device is picking up and 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 determine whether that is um, you know whether it's working for you. Um, you know, and a physical therapist can help uh, you know help with that as well. When we measure gait and in people with Parkinson's in research, for example, we use uh, research grade monitors or different monitors that have been validated and are usually more accurate in, in measuring different aspects of walking. But these commercially available devices, again, for someone early on that has really mild gait uh, problems, they're probably pretty good. But with more, you know, moderate to severe gait disturbances, they may not be as accurate. Okay. Um, so, so knowing, so the devices may not work as well. I know I would trick my device sometimes by just shaking my arm and having yeah. it record some steps. That's, yeah. yeah. That's another great point is it can measure, you know, if you wear it on the wrist, it can pick up things like tremor and, you know, and it's dyskinesia can also, uh, you know, lead to erroneous counting of steps. So there are other factors um, that can be counted as steps that, of course, aren't steps. Anand or Alfonso, anything you wanted to add on the wearables? Uh, not yeah. necessarily. Uh, Anand is an expert. I just want to say that uh, wearables are uh, measuring some motion. So I, I, I always see too much hype around variables that can be useful, but it depends how you use them and what you want them, what question you want them to answer. Uh, if you're talking about uh, something called gamification, so you're actually playing and, and actually using these wearables to keep track of your mobility to motivate you to do more, that's a useful way to use them. Uh, but often they don't really uh, add much in my experience, but Anat does research on this, so she might have a different opinion. No, but I, I agree with this comment. In essence, you know, it depends on what, what the question is. And in research, we're looking for specific things to better understand the mechanism, to better understand the variance between people, and maybe to predict things like who will fall, who will develop freezing of gait in the future. But when using, you know, commercially available devices in the home, um, I mean, I, I would regard them as something that is motivational. So for a behavioral aspect, you know, how much I'm moving, looking at, you know, giving me some incentive to potentially do more, uh, get out of the house and be more mobile. But uh, I wouldn't take this as a, you know, uh, too, um, too accurate or or really depend on it. And as uh, Alfonso said, there are also wearables that are used uh, um, for um, therapy or for cueing or for, um, you know, uh, 
giving some uh, some uh, mobility enhancers. But um, again, this needs to be evaluated for each person. And as we said before, really therapy should be consulted with a therapist before using these devices alone. So there are a lot of questions coming up about DBS. I know for my, myself, DBS has been hugely helpful and I feel really lucky about that. But in terms of gait, I, I have developed more kind of a, of a shuffle or fenestration. I think that's how you say it, but, I, but that word is going to plague me. But I wonder if um, we could address the DBS question a little bit more. I just Probably. have a question, Becca. Did you have freezing of gait before your DBS? No, and I still don't. Um, I, I can probably take this one because I spent most of my day uh, and I spent most of my life at this point uh, uh, talking about deep brain stimulation and using deep brain stimulation to help people. Um, I also seen in the chat that some people were wondering what DBS is. Simply put, is a brain pacemaker. Our, it consists in usually two electrodes, one per side, inserted in certain strategic parts of the brain connected with wires that run under the skin, attached to a battery pack, a real pacemaker that is usually under the collarbone. So that's a stimulation of certain parts of the brain and it, it works, but, and that's the most important message probably about this, it works in well-selected people. It's not something that you will do and you will have the same answer or the same effect across the board. No, it depends on the person. Uh, it also depends on the target. Uh, there are two major targets in the brain subthalamic stimulation, so stimulation of a target called subthalamus, or globus pallidus stimulation, so stimulation of another nucleus called globus pallidus. The first one is usually the strongest, but it's also the ones that can cause more problems if done not in the right person. Uh, that's usually the one that young people have because also allows medication reduction. But guess what? If you do it in the wrong person, one thing that you can easily see is speech balance and gait worsening after brain surgery, or even with the wrong stimulation parameters. So this is extremely relevant to, the day, to today's topic because this type of DBS can help, and it can help a lot because the effect mimics the effect of levodopa. But if it's done in a brain that is too frail, in a patient who is not the right candidate, you actually have the opposite effect. This is why whatever we say today, as you heard already, has to be discussed with your own care provider. Um, the other target, globus pallidus, is safer, safer with respect to gait and balance. It's probably less effective on slowness. This is why medications are usually not reduced. But that's the target we choose in, in Toronto, for example, when we deal with uh, people who are a bit more frail or they have already freezing of gait to begin with. Uh, so, in short, it works because it's a constant effect on the brain. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to do DBS early in the disease. Uh, it's very effective for motor fluctuations when the symptoms go up and down and or for dyskinesias. So, anytime your disease needs something that is constant, this is where you need deep brain stimulation. The only exception to this will probably be tremor because tremor responds better to deep brain stimulation than medication. So some people go for deep brain stimulation even when they don't have fluctuations or dyskinesias, but simply because they have a tremor. Uh, but e everything has a price. So if no well selected, you may end up with problems. Uh, and that's why you need to rely on what your uh, care provider tells you. That was a great summary. Um, so in, in terms of the effect of DBS on, on gait, then, if for a well-chosen candidate, what, what do you think 
That's why we do Liver Dopa Challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. Liver Challenge is uh, so, sometimes people ask me, uh, okay, why do we need to do this? Uh, meaning that they come to the hospital without medication taken, without levodopa, so that we can see how they do without medications. Then we give the medication and we see how much is the response to uh, medication. As a rule of thumb, whatever problem improves with levodopa, it will improve with DBS. So that's the that's why we do the levodopa challenge. So uh, if someone has a freezing of gait that doesn't respond uh, to medication, uh, DBS has very little role. Uh, it can still help many other things, tremor, stiffness, but it won't help freezing. So sometimes we do the Libertopa challenge also to uh, tell the patient and the family what to expect fr from this procedure because a big problem with DBS is expectation. Very often people are disappointed after the procedure if these expectations are not set clear from the very beginning and Libertopa challenge helps. Uh, in this case, in particularly particularly speaking, as uh, for freezing, uh, to some extent also balance, uh, even though that's more difficult to predict. Uh, we tend not to do too much DBS in people with a profound balance problem, because DBS rarely helps. Mm. Thank you. So I wonder um, what, the, from the audience, there's a lot of questions about different tips or tricks on um, helping with freezing or balance issues. Just two, two points. Uh, uh, Actually, three points very quickly. First, that sometimes medications don't help make things worse. Uh, and keep that in mind because uh, you go see your neurologist, oh, freezing is still a problem. The, the neurologist, the natural tendency of, of any, every doctor, including myself, would be to give you higher doses. And that creates a vicious circle where things get worse and worse and worse. Levodopa in rare cases can make freezing worse, for example. Uh, the, mm -hmm. second, the second thing is blood pressure. A big issue is low blood pressure, especially when you stand up quickly, you may feel a little dizzy, or even without feeling it right away, the blood pressure can drop, can drop over time, and that's an unrecognized cause for balance problems and falls. So always measure blood pressure, not just lying down or sitting, but also standing. And finally, there was a comment about wheelchair in the chat, and I think it's an important point to address. Uh, we are not opposed to wheelchair, uh, but they're not always needed, thankfully, uh, especially uh, we, we want people to try to uh, move as much as they can to keep active. Sometimes wheelchair is needed for safety reason. Um, there's no need to be uh, worried about the steam of, of a wheelchair, which is a problem sometimes, because wheelchair can be used also during strategic moments of the day. For example, you use the wheelchair to go from a, uh, at, the, at the airport just for that long, uh, usually, walk that there is at the airport, you are in a wheelchair, and then you forget about the wheelchair. You don't use it anymore when you're on the plane, when you're in the in the lounge or whatever, because you don't need to walk for so long. So it's also a, a wise way to use a wheelchair. It's, an, it's something useful. We don't always recommend to go there necessarily, but it can be safe for, for a whole perspective. I think that's so important. I, I love that you said, um, you know, not to, disregard the stigma of it because I, I mean I think that's really about it's really about you know keeping your quality of life and doing what you need to do to you know be able to keep on doing things like travel and airports and you know that saving your energy in that kind of way is so great I wonder if there are any other tips or tricks or um particularly oh I guess one one other question that was coming up in the chat was about toe curling and kind of um, that how, and I guess that's, you know, dystonia and um, affecting your feet and how that can affect gait as well. 
Right. Yeah, so dystonia can respond to levodopa, uh, but another easy way to treat dystonia is botulinum toxin injection in under your foot or in other muscles of the of the leg, and that can help the curling, and that can in turn also help gait. Help gait. Great. Well, let's. Um, we're going to take a quick uh, chance to talk about um, the PPMI, um, just as a brief aside to let. Um, folks know about the progressive Parkinson's progressive markers initiative by the um, Michael J. Fox Foundation. So um, they're currently recruiting folks to be a part of the study. Um, so you can visit that website and um, and um, sign up so you can sign up yourself. Um, those without Parkinson's can also sign up. Um, there's a free smell test that you can order. So check that out, please, because this is one of the ways that we can involve more people in research and spread awareness about Parkinson's. So I think, um, you know, we, the time has just flown by, but I think we want to um, just see if there are any helpful tips and tricks and other recommendations that the pan our panelists would have for the audience. I see there's a couple of questions on, on how to improve balance. And, you know, I think, I think there's a, a few things we, we, it's really important to take a history from the, from the person that's experiencing balance problems to identify the circumstances under which they lose their balance, that there might be falling. So that's really important. And then we do a, a standardized assessment to determine again, under what conditions people fall or lose their balance. And because that will then tailor the treatment but in general, challenging balance is what's important to do. And there's lots of ways to do that. Um, it can be done by uh, participating in things like Tai Chi, for example. And there's dance has been shown to uh, improve balance. There are certain balance exercises that can be done. And so it's not that one specific thing needs to be done or one type of exercise. It's just that in general, balance needs to be challenged. So it needs to be, um, you know, the dosing has to be enough and it has to be, you know, con done continuously over time. Not, you know, not a, you know, just uh, a few days or a few weeks and that's it. You know, it has to be done over the long term. So again, what that does, what that means is that there's a lot of choice and people have, you know, can choose something that they like or they're willing, you know, that they are willing to do and adhere to over time. But it's nice also to, to get a full evaluation so that you can sort of tailor that specific intervention to the particular types of balance problems that you're experiencing. Great. I wanna give oh, another I'm tip. Um, uh, for the audience, we've been saying all along through this out throughout this webinar that it's personalized and we need to keep in mind, you know, the the person. But there is one tip I think that is uh, can be generalized to everybody, especially um, to those who are recently diagnosed. And it is uh, that if we, you know, start practicing or start um, um, doing exercise early. And if you maintain a good health and a good mobility with your body, you might be able to sustain it for a longer period of time. And this is important because we know from research that early intervention now uh, can have an effect on the disease progression and potentially 
we we can delay you know any complications and it goes also for falls you know uh, one of the things that people often ask is how do i um treat falls well the best way to treat falls is to avoid them and avoiding them by uh you know creating a better mobility capacity and uh, sustaining the best balance that you have and this needs to be started early as as terry has said and each one of of uh, you, of us, of everybody, uh, needs to find the thing that he loves to do that he can be um, can maintain exercising for a long period of time. It doesn't have to be the same all the time. It can be different, and you can change throughout the course of the disease and throughout you know your life. Uh, but it it needs to be consistent. We you have to exercise. You have to be mobile at all times. That's Start early thing. before you even have the problem. That's, exactly. That's, that's key, no matter what the problem is. This is what I tell myself every morning when I get up. Mm -hmm. and I <laughs> always postpone it. Um, well, there's a, a lot of questions about this pain from toe curling. I wonder, we just have a couple minutes left, but I wonder, Alfonso, if you wanted to address that really quick. Uh, the, the curling is uh, dystonia. Usually, it's uh, it responds well to shots of botulinum toxin or medications, and uh, well, dystonia can uh, also affect the calf and also be painful, especially in the middle of the night. Uh, there are ways to minimize this with drugs, and again, botulinum toxin can be used. Um, yeah, no, no more than that. I, I, I think we should use this uh, next few minutes to discuss the other tips. I've seen questions about music therapy that probably Terry and Annette can can comment on. Uh, there are so many things. And, and let me just say once again that uh, the most important thing is exercising, really. It, it goes beyond DBS, goes beyond medication. It's the real medication. Well, save your brain. Um, I think maybe, Terry, you can uh, mention when to um, when to go to a physical therapist, when to start, you yeah, know, I, how to find definitely. one. Right. It, I think it's really important uh, to establish your, your, your team early. You know, your whole team, your, your neurologist, your therapist, your physical therapist, your speech language pathologist. You know, I, I think uh, so we recommend people go see a physical therapist at, as soon as they're diagnosed. You want to be you want an exercise program that, you know, what the focus is on prevention, you know, and and um, and, and, you know, getting started early, making the lifestyle changes necessary to integrate exercise into your life, particularly at the beginning when it's easiest and when you're most mobile and most able to, uh, you know, to benefit from, from an exercise program. And then we recommend, just like you go back to see a neurologist every six months or, or whatever for a medication adjustment, it's important to go back to see a physical therapist every six months or annually to get an exercise adjustment. You can't just do one exercise program for life. It has to be adjusted and tailored depending on how the disease is changing and how you're changing and what your goals are. So we recommend regular follow-up visits for that reason. That's such a great point. And, and just adjusting it to, you know, how you're disease is progressing, how things are changing for you and, you know, things changing in your life. I know for me that, um, you know, I go back and forth between being really good about exercise and then dropping off for a while. And then I need to kind of re-motivate and um, come up with something new and, you know, right. go out with a friend or, you know, all different 
different things that I can do to get myself to continue to exercise. Well, I just want to say thank you so much to each of you for um, all your wisdom and knowledge and, and contributions to the Parkinson's community um, and with the research and work that you do. Um, really just so important. I mean, there's so many questions in the chat. I wish we could have another hour, but I know we have to wrap up in, in just a minute here. And so I just want to say thank you. And any any last comment that you each want to make? Just thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um, education is really key. Um, it's important that Michael J. Fox Foundation is giving us this opportunity. I agree. This is an important topic, and I'm glad we had the chance to discuss it amongst ourselves. I think, um, you know, it's something that doesn't get as much uh, attention as some of the other aspects of, of Parkinson's, and, and this is a really important topic. Great. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, Becca. Thank you for moderating, and again, start early. Exercise. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.